Psalm 84, verse number 1. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca, make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appears before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look on the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to trust more, trust better. And may our study of your word contribute to that. Use your word to speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this is the third week that we've been looking at Psalm 84. And with each time that I read the psalm, I see new things. There are things that I should have touched on earlier when we were in verse 3 or verse number 4, and uh, we passed that, and now we're on into something else. We must never think that we have intellectually conquered any portion of the Word of God. It is infinite. Perhaps one of our occupations in heaven will be mastering new material out of the old book when we have sharper minds and more time to ponder on the grace of the Lord. The Bible tells me that the angels of God today are learning things about their master and those uh, beings have been around for quite some time now and they're still learning. Yesterday, as I was rereading this psalm, I was reminded of something which is both mystical and practical. We have a blend of prayer and testimony in this psalm, with one verse speaking to God, and the next speaking about God to God's people, flopping back and forth. Verse number 11, for example, is a word of testimony. It's not exactly prayer. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. It isn't a prayer. It's a statement of fact. But the psalm begins, obviously, with prayer. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. It's not a request. It's still conversation with God. The last verse seems to blend both prayer and instruction. O Lord of hosts, okay, it's prayer. Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. The Lord, of course, 
knows that he blesses faith. But the people of God need to be constantly reminded the Lord blesses faith. And this reminds me that as the people of God, we are to live with one foot on earth and the other in heaven. We're to keep one eye on our earthly responsibilities while with the other eye we are looking toward Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Spiritual extropia. The Lord should so occupy our minds that while we're talking to our neighbor, at the same time, we're talking to the Lord. And if not directly speaking to the Lord, at least he's just one breath away. We're going from one to the other and back again. Are these things possible? Well, apparently they are because we do find that in the Word of God and even in this particular psalm. Let's temporarily finish our consideration of the psalmist's testimony and praise in Psalm 84. If we came back to it next week, we could have more material, but at, at this point in time, I'm not planning to return. But still, there's more for us to uh, open and, and digest if we would do so. We start with verse number 9 tonight. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of of thine anointed. My first question arising from the statement is in regard to anointed. Anointed is the most common translation of the Hebrew word, but several times the same Hebrew word is translated Messiah, the anointed one. There are several commentators who point out that this verse could be speaking about Christ Jesus. But despite what I said about an eye on the Lord and an eye on the earth, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It's not speaking about Christ here, at least in my mind. This is not a messianic psalm. It doesn't contain any prophecies about the uh, uh, Lord Jesus. It doesn't seem to be speaking of Christ at all. If this is David who is writing the psalm, and we don't have an indication to that effect, if it's David, then he could be speaking about the anointed king of Israel himself. But there's a sense in which all of God's people are anointed. They are separated unto God. They have received the Holy Spirit. We are the anointed of the Lord. And that's the way I am going to look at this psalm. Right or wrong, that's what you're stuck with tonight. This is speaking to us. As saved and sanctified people, I think that we could stick our names there at the end of this verse. This is to us. Oh, behold, God, our shield, look upon the face of thine anointed. David Oldfield. Eric Berg, Benjamin Kilgard. Secondly, in this verse, we should be struck with the boldness of the psalmist. Only a fool or a man of great faith and confidence in the Lord's grace would say to the infinite God, Hey Lord, take a look at me. 
Behold, look at me. Yet that's what we have here if my interpretation is correct. Should we be this bold before the Lord? Yes, sometimes we should. We should be bold in different ways, depending on circumstances. We're encouraged to be bold before the Lord. We need to be bold for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's come boldly to the throne of grace. Or in this particular case, let's be bold and say, Lord, take a look at this face of mine. Then we have two closely related words in bold and look. Are they saying the same thing? Is there a difference between them? Or is the poet only reiterating his plea? Truth is, I can't answer that question except to say that whoever the psalmist is, he is praying in earnest. Look, behold, study. Look at me, Lord. I can't find any significant difference between the two words. The psalmist is simply saying, Lord, please look. Please study my face. And what about that reference to the man's face? At least in this psalm, the saint didn't ask God to look at his hands or his feet. He wasn't asking to be judged for what he was doing or where he was going. Consider my face, Lord. I confess that I have never asked the Lord to study my face. Maybe you have, good for you, but I haven't. Maybe we should. Obviously we should from time to time. We have the biblical example. Behold my face, Lord. My face? What is it about my face that makes it so special? Why should the Lord look at my face? Certainly it's not the nose that I have, the eyebrows that I have. Lord, check out this nose. Very noble, Romanesque, like a horse's nose. There's not, there's not much I can do about my nose. It is what it is, and the Lord gave it to me. So why would the Lord have any real interest in it? As far as my eyebrows go... I try to keep them out of my glasses. Some of you may take your eyebrows very, very seriously. I just don't want them messing up my glasses. But I don't think the Lord, that the psalmist is saying, check out my, my, uh, my eyebrows. But then there is the smile. I was in Costco the other day. And I saw a man standing in front of the flower display. You know, that little corner where they have all the cut flowers. He wasn't looking at the flowers. He was just standing there with his cart in front of him. I don't know if his wife was around the corner or what was going on. But he had a smile on his face. I would call it sardonic. That means uh, 
there was a bit of mockery in it. There was a bit of cynicism, cynicism in it. There was a story behind that smile. Uh, I assume that it was not his regular smile, but that's an assumption on my part. I didn't ask him about his smile for fear of his rearranging my smile somehow. I just didn't go there. It seems to me that in advertising, you see a billboard or there's an ad for the, uh, uh, the newscasters here or there, and there is that smile that they have, which so very, very often just does not look real to me. Like it's painted on, or that person has been practicing really hard to learn how to smile like this. It's not ordinary. It's not real. Most of us can recognize a genuine smile. And certainly the Lord can. Lord, you know that my heart is filled with joy. You can see that joy in my smile. Lord, check out my smile. Another important part of the face are the eyes. At times, they should be downcast. At other times, there should be tears in the corners. Sometimes our eyes should be dreamily looking toward the horizon. Sometimes they should be focused on details. Lord, as you can see, I am looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Check my face out, Lord. It's real. Use it for your glory. Verse 10. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Remember that earlier, our writer expressed a longing for the courts of the Lord. In fact, there seems to be a, a, a thread that runs through the entire psalm that relates to the tabernacle of God or the courts of the Lord. They certainly have reference to heaven, but they also point a finger to God's house on earth, as far as I'm concerned. And what should be taking place in the courts of the house of God? Service, prayer, praise, fellowship, expression of joy, growth, the declaration of the word of God. It should be our testimony before God and before our neighbors that a single day, a single hour in the presence of the Lord is better than a thousand days anywhere else to be in the house of God, to be in fellowship with the Lord and other believers. One day in the service of the Savior is better than a million in the service of anybody else. It produces lack of a better term, rewards in heaven. For the child of God, we will experience the Lord's blessings throughout eternity. 
But the psalmist teaches us that our joy for the house of God begins at home. Begins right here. Begins now. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The word doorkeeper is found one time in the word of God. So I can't turn to other psalms and say, this sheds light on what the psalmist is saying here. I can't turn to, even to the New Testament and say, this is what we're talking about here. And without that help, I get to use my imagination. What does a doorkeeper do? What sort of responsibilities does he have? He might open and close the doors so that others can go in. That's a good job. Shouldn't that be one of our privileges? Shouldn't that be one of our responsibilities? To hold open the door so that others may go in to worship and, and learn about our Savior. That's a good one. At the same time, keeping that door might mean keeping unworthy people out. Door keeper. Recently, a couple of weeks ago, I started the slow and meticulous process of painting the interior of the parsonage. If you don't know what the parsonage is, look it up in the dictionary. One of the places to best see the improvements that I'm making is uh, after the... the uh, molding on the edges of the floor are the doors. After I paint the doors, I can see a difference. Dirty hands been grabbing the doors, round the doorknobs so filthy after, well, I won't tell you how many years it's been. Uh, getting a coat of paint on there really makes it look good. What does a doorkeeper do? He keeps the door in good shape. He dusts it. He, he cleans it. He paints it from time to time. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. We have a couple of comparisons here in this part of the verse. The first is, there's a difference between the house of God and the tents of wickedness. A house is a, a little more permanent than a tent. Can we say that? The house of God is permanent while the tents of the wicked are temporary. The house of God is built upon a rock. The chief cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. Tents come and go. That's what they're for. To come and go. They're relatively flimsy. Why spend a fortune decorating a tent that is going to be destroyed by the grisly bear of God's judgment? 2 Corinthians 5.1 reminds us, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, this tent, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal, in the heavens. 
We should lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven behind the door that uh, is being kept for us. The second comparison in this verse is between the owners of those residences, the house of God and the tents of wickedness. I mentioned on Sunday that I had just finished reading two books dealing with some of the mining and logging communities here in the Northwest. I borrowed Brother Berg's book on the St. Joe and I tore the thing apart. The pages all came out of it. Uh, signed copy by the authors, by the way. Don't about that. But it's, uh, it was really interesting. And then another one that I read about Southern, or about Southern British Columbia. I've told you about that. And some places, as gold and silver was discovered, or they chose to log, communities developed. Sometimes slowly, sometimes instantly, almost overnight, there were a hundred people, and then within a month, a thousand people living in a particular place. And some of the first structures were tents. And in both books, it said that many of those first structures were put up by wicked women who intended to uh, uh, ply their trade. And when a forest fire swept through the area, as sometimes it did, down here, up in British Columbia, uh, whole communities were destroyed. And almost instantly again, if the gold and silver was still there, the tents would go up. And almost always, the first of the tents to go back up, out of the ashes, were the tents of the wicked. First thing. But of course, tents of ill repute are not the only places of wickedness. Even church buildings can bear that title. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. In verse number 9, the psalmist had earlier addressed the Lord as his shield. This could be either... According to the Hebrew, that small buckler that attached to the arm. Or it could be that full body protection that a poor, vulnerable Goliath needed to have. There's nothing I can say to enhance the image. A shield is a shield. What can I do to add to that? God is our shield. The Almighty God is the protection of all the protection that his saint really needs. The Lord cannot be defeated. He cannot be overcome. We are safe under the shelter which the Lord provides. What we need to do is crawl under those sheltering wings and let the Lord protect us. The Lord is our shield and also our sun. He provides us with the light that we need. Even in trying to read a good book, trying to read something that can warm our soul, even to read the Word of God, we have to have light on the book and 
in our heart mm. to get out of it what we need. The Lord is our sun and our shield. The sun is the best, the least expensive source of light and source of heat as well. Of course, the sun is essential to life on this planet. Our Lord God is our sun and our shield. Christ is life in every possible way. And then as one of our hymns said a little earlier, the Lord will give grace and glory. Of course, grace and glory are God's to give as he sovereignly chooses to do so. On the other hand, the believer may have confidence that God will give grace and glory. There seems to be confidence here in this psalm because we have a great many verses with promises to that effect. But notice the order. Grace and glory. Not glory and grace. First comes that particular blessing that only God can give. Today, the saint of God enjoys the Lord's grace. One of these days, we will really know what glory is. I hath not seen, nor either ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 9. The psalmist says, No good thing will the Lord withhold from them that walk uprightly. Of course, God is not a debtor to anybody. And he's not a debtor to the man who walks uprightly. He gives good things because of his grace. Yes. And yet we find promises about this sort of thing throughout the word of God. Maybe your favorite is Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Maybe you like Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But remember, in the context of this psalm, it is to them that walk uprightly. Even though God's blessings flow out of his grace, there are prerequisites to receiving those blessings here on earth. Christ Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then shall be added unto you all these blessings. God owes us nothing. Nothing. We should strive to walk uprightly, whether there are any blessings and rewards or not. He deserves our proper service. To walk uprightly means that in God's sight, how can I put it? We walk tall because we walk before the one who has been gracious toward us. There's no reason for us to stoop or drag our feet when we're standing before the Lord. Walk uprightly. And the last verse. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Turning 
one eye back to the Lord while still keeping the other on more earthly things, the psalmist says, how supremely joyful is the soul who puts his trust in God. I hope that you can see the spiritual logic to the statement. When our trust is in the God who controls all circumstances, when our trust is in the God who limits all enemies and possesses all the resources of the universe and heaven itself, how could we not be joyful? Yes, amen. We are blessed beyond measure. We should certainly tell the Lord that we are thankful in these things. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Is that a prayer? Or is that something we say to our neighbor? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. It is a wonderful 